source of true delight, whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight, that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying. If you'd like, uh, turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 1 through 12 this morning. That's not the text that is printed in your bulletin. I was happy to take Darwin's call at 6 o'clock last night. I was not happy to preach a sermon on Luke chapter 1, 57 through 80, because I don't have a sermon on Luke chapter 1, 57 through 80. That's page 809 in the Pew Bible. This is God's Word. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, For they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our Lord remains forever. Amen. If you'd like, pray with me. Heavenly Father, there is absolutely nothing We need more than to hear you this morning. And I can't make that happen. On my best day with my best sermon, I couldn't make that happen. And I'm pretty sure this isn't my best day and this isn't my best sermon. We would ask that you would teach us, that you would soften our hearts, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see the good things you have for us. Again, that we might behold you in your glorious beauty in the person of Jesus. Teach us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to begin just very quickly 
and say thank you. Um, you might not know this, but Fort Worth Presbyterian Church makes it possible for me to be an RUF campus minister at North Carolina State University. And I'm grateful to this church, and I'm also grateful to many of you who support us and the work of Christ at NC State, both with your generous gifts and with your prayers. So thank you. I just want to say that up front. As we think about this text this morning, I want to ask a couple of questions. There's one word that's repeated over and over and over and over in this passage. And that word is, of course, blessed. Blessed. And I, I want to ask you a couple of questions. And, and those questions are pretty basic. What does it look like to be blessed? And who are the blessed? Now, those might sound like no-brainer questions to you, but I want to suggest something to you. That the way you answer those questions are both very revealing and very important. They reveal, your answer reveals how you see and understand life, and your answers will shape the way you live your life. Who are the blessed? Well, it depends on who you talk to. If you're into sports, the blessed are the winners. You never hear a losing coach or a losing player at the end of the game being interviewed and that coach or player says, oh, we were just really, really blessed today. It's always the winning coach. It's always the winning player. Or think about the world of finances. Who are the blessed? Well, the blessed are folks who have um, nice houses, who drive nice cars, whose bank accounts are fat. They are the blessed. Or, since I do RUF, academically, who are the blessed? The, the blessed are, in our day and age, the National Merit Scholar finalists who get a 1570 on their SAT and as a consequence receive a full scholarship to the college or university of their choice. Who are the blessed? The blessed, according to our world, are the winners and the wildly successful. But here's the question. What happens if blessings like these never come your way? Is there any hope of blessing for folks like you and, and like me who aren't the winners of the world? And Jesus' answer to that question in this passage is emphatically yes. Yes. But the blessings and the blessed are not what and who you think. In this passage, Jesus tells us that the blessing that really counts, the blessing of God comes to sinners. The weak, the broken, the foolish who live their lives in 
tension and suffering and conflict, even persecution, but who look to Christ in faith. Jesus blesses sinners. Now, I used to work here. I'm pretty sure that you hear those words week in and week out from this pulpit. Jesus blesses sinners. But I'm also confident of this, and that is that no matter who you are, no matter what you believe, no matter what you say with your lips, you struggle. If you were honest with yourselves and with the rest of us, you struggle to believe those words in your hearts. Let me see if I can illustrate. Um, I was here this past week for RUF staff training. Rob, Hamby, and myself, and Lauren Babbitt, and a number of us gathered together in Dallas for staff training. And we do that every six months, once in July and once in December. Well, last July we had staff training in Atlanta, and staff training pretty much runs the same way every week. And on Tuesday of every week of staff training, we have a worship service where we pray prayers and we sing songs and we recite the confession. We hear the word read and we hear the word preached. And at the end of the worship service, we always celebrate the Lord's table. Well, Staff training in July was no different. We gathered together at about 5.30 and we sang songs and we prayed and we recited the confession and then the word was read and it was preached. And afterward, we began to prepare ourselves to take the Lord's Supper. And as I was sitting there trying to pray, a thought crossed my mind. That thought was simply this. I don't know if I should take communion. I don't know if I should go to the Lord's table. Now, what you need to know is that my reservation was not rooted in some kind of heinous, unconfessed sin, at least that I'm aware of. My reservation was rooted in the fact that I simply didn't feel anything. Spiritually speaking, I felt cold. I felt distant. I felt callous. I felt hard. I felt apathetic. I think if you'd asked me, I would have probably said, the problem isn't what I believe about God or Jesus or the Bible or the gospel. The problem is that I don't believe the right way. And then it occurred to me, Maybe the problem is what I believe. What was I believing? I was believing Jesus isn't enough. Jesus isn't enough. And the flip side is I can and I must make up what Jesus has left undone. At that moment, as I was preparing myself to come to the Lord's table, I, I was believing that there is this gap. Maybe it's just a hair's breadth. This gap between the blessings of Christ and me. It, it's a gap that 
I need to, to make up with my religious fervor, with my zeal, with my feelings, with my passions, with my prayers, with my practice of piety, with my reading of the Bible, with my attendance at church, with you fill in the blank. But think about what Jesus says in the first portion of the Beatitudes. What does he say? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, what do those four Beatitudes have in common? Well, think about it. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? To be poor in spirit means to know that you don't have any spiritual resources within yourself. No ability to save yourself and no ability to keep yourself saved. Spiritual poverty, a person who is spiritually impoverished admits that they are bankrupt before God. That they got nothing. What are the blessed mourning over? Sin. Their own sin and the sins of others and its consequences. What does it mean to be meek? Quite simply, it means because you are aware of your spiritual poverty, you relate to other folks with gentleness and humility. Finally, what does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Well, at least a couple things. Um, first of all, a hunger and thirst for righteousness begins with the recognition that you've got no righteousness of your own. But it's more than that. It's the realization that you have no righteousness that results in the desire to be filled with righteousness, to be made righteous. What do these four Beatitudes have in common? The very thing that every one of you desperately is trying to avoid or deny. Poverty. Brokenness. Neediness. And all four of these beatitudes spring up out of soil the soil of spiritual poverty, neediness, and brokenness. Listen to how one pastor puts it. He says, your wants, your sins, your emptiness, your poverty, your hardness of heart, these are the only things that you can bring him. And he asks only these. He seeks to make you partakers of his fullness. So that the emptier you are, the more suitable and sufficient you will find that fullness. You cannot be too empty, too poor, too needy, too sick, too worthless for Him. Here's the question. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? You see, in the Beatitudes... Jesus is not promising blessing to the spiritually successful. 
He's promising blessing to broken people, needy people, sinful people who see and admit that they are wrecks, but who look to him for deliverance. If you're like me, the temptation for you when you come face to face with your sort of spiritual apathy, with your sort of fair-weathered faith, with the fact that you haven't picked your Bible up in a week or, or prayed except maybe at dinner real quick, um, your, your, your tendency, your, the, the temptation you face is to think, I've somehow got to get my stuff together. I somehow have to, 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 to make myself better. I've got to make up for this sin, this apathy. I've got to whip myself into feeling something for God. Longer quiet times, um, joining a small group in the church. Maybe it's just attending church more regularly or, better yet, perhaps it's giving more to the church. We all use those things to try to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. And they work sometimes for a while. But what happens inevitably when you take that approach? I'll tell you what happens inevitably. You crash and burn. Inevitably, you'll be left in a spiritual funk. Now, what's going on there? Well, lots of things I suspect, but I thought about two things. Number one, if, if you're a believer in those moments, you sort of know in your brain, I need to drink deeply of the grace of God. But there's something else that's going on because you are tempted to think that you need to provide the cup with which to drink the grace of God. That cup being what? Your piety, your passion, your earnestness, your reading of the Bible, your church attendance, your whatever. You know, you do, you know that your cup is flawed. It's imperfect. It's cracked and it's dirty. And so what you try to do is you try to fix up your cup or clean out your cup. You think this. You think, if I could just believe a little better, if I could just feel a little more passion, if I could just be a little more consistent in my Bible reading, in my prayer... And what you've done in those moments is that you have confused the cup with the water. You are acting as if your cup, rather than the gracious living waters of God, which your cup holds, will satisfy, will quench your spiritual thirst. In other words... What you've done is you've turned your faith or your faithfulness into your Jesus. You have taken the crown of crowns from Jesus' head and you have placed it on your efforts, your emotions, 
and your earnestness. You are acting as if you are saved by your faith and not by Jesus. Now, I'm not wanting to debate the Apostle Paul. I know what he meant when he said that we are saved by faith. But you are not saved by your faith. You are saved by Jesus. And when you begin to think that you are saved by your efforts, by your faith, by your faithfulness, by your piety, you know what happens? You are always left fearful, doubting, and in despair. Always. Inevitably, it will happen, I promise you. So why does God allow this? Why does God allow this bizarre dynamic of conviction of sin which leads to despair? I'll tell you why. It's God's grace to you. Listen to the words of Horatius Bonner. The Spirit's work is not to enable a man to do something which will save him or help to save him, but so to detach him from all his own exertions and performances, whether good, bad, or indifferent, that he shall be content with the salvation which the Savior of the lost has finished. That's why Jesus can say, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. All of those people are being weaned from themselves. They are being weaned from self-improvement projects. They are being weaned from self-dependence. And they are being planted in the person of Jesus. And that's God's grace to you. It feels bad, but it's God's grace. There's a a big steeple church in our denomination whose pastor had to resign a number of years ago because it was discovered that he was addicted to pain medication. And when this pastor was found out, he resigned from the pulpit and he went to recovery for months. And when his time of recovery was over, do you know what he did? He came back to his church. And you could find that pastor every Sunday sitting on the second row of his church, singing, praying, and listening to the preaching of the word. Well, last summer on a Wednesday evening communion service, this pastor, this former pastor, was invited to tell his story to his congregation, to his former congregation. And following his telling of his story, he invited questions from the congregation. What do you want to know? So during, and what you need to know is like, this pastor was a mover and shaker in the PCA. If, if, if I had been this guy, I would have packed my bags and I would have disappeared. You would never hear my name. But every Sunday, this pastor was sitting on the second row of his church, singing and praying and listening to God's word. During the Q&A, one of his former congregants asked him a question. He said, you've been coming here for the last year, and I've been watching you every week. You're here. Why? I mean, not why like in a condemning way, but like why wouldn't it have been easier if you would just like 
gone away? Wouldn't it have been easier if like, you had just gone to a different church? Wouldn't it have been easier if you'd never shown your face in this church? And do you know what this pastor said? He said, where else could I go? Folks, this pastor gets the gospel. He understands that blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Here's a question for you. Where do you run when you come face to face with your apathy, with your coldness, with your inconsistency, with the fact that you don't want to read your Bible or pray, with the fact that it's hard getting up out of bed on Sunday morning and and, and coming to church. Where do you run? What Jesus is saying in this passage is, run to me. Don't run away. Don't try to whip up emotions. Come as you are. Run to me. That's the first thing that I want you to see in this passage, but there's something else I want you to see in this passage, and that is that Jesus blesses sinners in the context, in the midst of conflict, hardship, and suffering. Now, I think if we were honest with ourselves, we would have to admit that we tend to equate blessing with bliss, blessing with peace. When you're getting along great with your husband or wife, that's blessing. Or when your parents finally hand you the keys to the car, that's a blessing. Or when your boyfriend finally gets down on his knees and proposes to you, will you be my wife, that's blessing. Or when there's no conflict or strife between you and your family or you and your roommate or you and your coworkers, that's blessing. Or when people praise you, that's blessing. And and I don't want to dispute that, at least not right now. But I also think we have a tendency to assume that when our lives become entangled in conflict and tension, suffering, even persecution, we assume that God has somehow abandoned us, that He is not at work in our lives, that He has turned His back on us, that He has withdrawn His blessings from us. And if this passage tells us anything, it tells us that Jesus blesses sinners not in the absence of hardship, conflict, suffering, and persecution, but that Jesus blesses sinners in the context of hardship, suffering, even persecution. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. What do all four of these beatitudes have in common? All four of these beatitudes presuppose some form of conflict, some form of tension, whether internal or external. And what Jesus is saying in this passage to you is that that's exactly where I work. That's exactly where I bring my blessing. Now, why is that important for you to know? Because if you equate blessing with comfort and conflict with divine abandonment, when you encounter the difficulties in this life, you will be tempted to do at least two things. Number one, 
you will be tempted to think that God has abandoned you. And number two, you will do everything within your power to avoid, withdraw, or insulate yourself from the very thing that God wants to do in your life. But what this passage is reminding us of is that God brings blessing in the midst of struggle, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of conflict. In fact, I think we can go a little further and say that what God is doing in the midst of struggles and conflict is He is making us like Jesus. Paul tells us in Romans 8, 28, we were reminded this morning that God works all things, all things for His glory and for our good, for those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. But of course, you've got to ask the question, what are God's purposes? Romans 8, 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. God blesses us in the midst of suffering, in the midst of conflict, in the midst of tension, to make us like Jesus. Now, what does that mean for you and for me? Well, to put it negatively, what it means is that when we run away from things that require us to be merciful, to endure, to be patient, to, to, to endure persecution, when we run away from those things, we are actually working at cross-purposes with God. Put positively, it means exactly what Paul is saying in this passage. That in the midst of tension, suffering, conflict, even persecution, we are being made more like Jesus. There's something else to think about here, though, and it's that not only... Do these kinds of things make us more like Jesus? They also have a tremendous apologetic effect. What I mean is that they, they reveal to us and they authenticate to us and they strengthen our faith. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Why? So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. Do you hear what the Apostle Paul is saying? Hymn writer John Newton put it like this. He said, Though afflictions in themselves are not joyous, but grievous, yet in due season they yield the peaceful fruits of righteousness. When faith endures the fire, we know it to be of the right kind. And others who see we are brought safe out and lose nothing but dross will confess that God is with us. 
Beloved, Jesus is not suggesting that you and I become Christian masochists. He's not. But what he is promising us is that he is with us and he will never leave us or forsake us, even in the midst of suffering, in conflict, tension, and persecution. More than that, in the midst of those things, he's making us like himself. There's one last thing that we need to think about this morning as we consider this passage. In these verses, Jesus ties blessing, God's blessing, with being poor in spirit, with mourning, with being meek, with hungering and thirsting for righteousness, with being merciful, with being pure in heart, with with being peacemakers, with, with being persecuted. And I don't know about you, but when I read those things, I'm always left with one question. Am I doing those things? How, how do I know if I'm pure in heart enough? How do I know if I'm meek enough? How do I know if I'm merciful enough? I'm pretty darn sure I'm not being persecuted. How do I know? Listen to how the Apostle Paul answers that question in Ephesians Chapter 1, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I'm going to say that one more time, because I think that's a big deal. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What is the Apostle Paul saying? Why are you blessed? It's not because of you. It's because of Jesus. Beloved, we we need to be constantly reminded that being a Christian is not about getting the Beatitudes right. Now, I'm not suggesting that we don't need to be pursuing what the Beatitudes describe. Of course, this the Beatitudes are the design of God's grace. This is what He wants for us. But being a Christian is not about getting the Beatitudes right. Being a Christian is about being united to the one who did and who is at work cultivating the fruit of His Spirit in our hearts, in our lives. Being a Christian is about trusting Jesus' life. That what he did when he walked this earth was enough for you. Being a Christian is trusting Jesus in his death. That in his death, the guilt of our sins was forgiven. It was done away with. It is finished. You see, the Beatitudes are about Jesus way before they are ever about you. It is Jesus who perfectly embodies the Beatitudes. He was perfectly poor in spirit 
Not to say that he was a sinner, but that he lived his life in perfect and complete dependence upon God. Over and over in the Gospels, we read words like this, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus was poor in spirit. Jesus mourned over sin and its consequences. The prophet Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. At the tomb of his dear friend Lazarus, he wept. As Jesus looked down on the city of Jerusalem for the last time before his crucifixion, he wept. As Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, facing the agony of the cross, Jesus wept. He sweated blood. He said this, he said, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Jesus mourned. Jesus was meek. One of my favorite passages, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is meek. Jesus was merciful. What most often moved Jesus to perform miracles? Do you know? Matthew 20, two blind men come to Jesus and beg to be healed. In verse 34, we read, And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Jesus is merciful. Jesus was pure in heart. He was so pure of heart that at his trial, they couldn't find anything to accuse him of. And so they had to trump up charges. Jesus was so pure in heart that when the temptation came to him, when he faced temptation to, to abandon the cross, he, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Pure in heart. Jesus is pure in heart. Jesus was a peacemaker in that he offered up himself to bring healing and salvation to people like you and like me. And finally, both in his life and his death on the cross, Jesus was persecuted for righteousness' sake. If there's one thing I want you to walk away this morning with, it's simply this. The Beatitudes are about Jesus before they're about you. And Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough, folks. By God's grace, for those of us who are believers, Jesus' perfection, Jesus' beauty, it's ours. We are the blessed because we are in Christ. Not what my hands have done, but what Jesus in love has done for me. Jesus is enough. There's so much more that we can say about the Sermon on the Mount. So much more we can say about the Beatitudes. Um, I've only touched the surface. But I just want to ask you one question in closing. If 
the Beatitudes describe Jesus. The question isn't, why should you trust Jesus? The question that I want to ask you is, why wouldn't you? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in spirit, and you will find rest for your souls. That's good news. If you'd like, pray with me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we, we read these words and we are convicted. We, we aren't poor in spirit. I mean, we are, but we don't think we are. We don't mourn over our sin. We love our sin. We, we aren't meek. We look at other people. We compare ourselves and we always come out on top. We don't hunger and thirst for righteousness. We hunger and thirst for things, for blessings, for, 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 for anything and everything but you. We aren't merciful. In fact, we're, we're critical. And we want what's ours. We aren't pure in heart. We are, we are so divided. Um, we try to live our lives following two kings, you and everything else. Lord, we aren't peacemakers. We're fighters. Lord, we, we don't endure persecution for your name's sake. In fact, we tell jokes that make people think we don't love you. And we are left undone at the end of this passage. Except for you. Thank you that you are perfectly poor in spirit. You are perfectly, you perfectly mourn. Thank you that you are meek. That you hunger and thirst for righteousness. That you are merciful. That you are a peacemaker. That you are pure in heart. That you were persecuted for righteousness sake. Thank you. That if we are found in you. That those things are ours. We would ask. Gracious father. Sweet son. Kind Holy Spirit, that you would work those fruit in our lives, that over time we would see and others would see the Beatitudes being manifested in our lives, not for us, but for your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. To soon the pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. 
Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain, break radiant through the shades of night, and chase my fears away. Won't you chase my fears away? Then shall my soul with rapture trace the wonders of the